if you've got a Bible, if you could turn to Acts uh, chapter 1, uh, we're reading from verse 12 to 26 today. Uh, we started our series on the book of Acts last week. Those of you who've been around for a while, we know we did the book of Luke a year or so back for a couple more years before that. Uh, this is the sequel, literally the sequel, written by the same guy, Luke, and Jonathan kicks us off uh, last time, and I'm going to pick up uh, from where we start. So without further ado, let's get into what's going on. Well, actually, having said that, let's just remind ourselves what's happened, what's the context. You've got where Jonathan left us off, I guess. Jesus, risen from the dead, has commissioned his disciples to say, look, you guys are going to be my witnesses now uh, in Jerusalem. In Judea and Samaria, that's the surrounding areas, and to the ends of the earth. We've called our series Acts to the ends of the earth because that phrase, to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, it's probably best to get it right, (laughs) and to the ends of the earth, that's kind of the phrase that sums up the pattern of the whole book. This is about how the gospel of Jesus goes out really in those kind of circles. And so Jesus commissions his disciples, but he doesn't say go straight away. He says wait, just wait for a bit, okay, before you go. And he's waiting because, uh, waiting for power to come on them, he says in Acts 1 verse 8. And the power is the power of the Holy Spirit that we are going to be looking at much more next week, that Jonathan's going to pick up on next week. But when he commissions them, well actually what happens then is he goes up to, to heaven. And when he leaves then, he's got this, they've got this commission, but they've also got some time to kill in Jerusalem. Because like, wait, you've got to wait and do nothing until this happens. And so we pick, uh, <laughs> pick up the story with the disciples, with time to to kill in Jerusalem. What will they do? Well, here we go. Pick it up verse 12. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So you've got the 11 disciples, important number 11. We'll come back to that in a minute, okay? And you've got some other followers of Jesus, and they hold themselves up in this secret location in Jerusalem, and uh, they pray. So far, so predictable, I would imagine. You get Christians together, what they're going to do, they're likely to pray. But if you're familiar with these guys at all, uh, you'll know that, like many of us, their prayer stamina wasn't fantastic, was it? Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? <laughs> and remember that story? They're all there in the garden. You'd have thought, well, if I was ever going to pray, the time when Jesus is about to be arrested would be kind of, I'd be motivated. Jesus, please, guys, pray. Just pray for a bit. It's okay, Jesus, of course, got it sorted. He goes away, comes back. What are they doing? They're asleep. Does it three times. Jesus eventually gives up this lot. I hope. <laughs> he, Jesus never says that about his followers. But, you know, and on this, he was a little bit disappointed with them. And it seems, and we, I think we can imagine from that as they gather to pray, you know what? Well, this would happen to anybody. There comes a time when the prayers run out, doesn't there? I don't know if you've had this. You're in a meeting and it's got a bit quiet. You're there. You peep one eye open. Has everyone got their eyes open? Usually then, you've worked, everyone's having tea and coffee already. You're standing there on your own. <laughs> but anyway, so their prayers come to a close. And uh, they're, they're, they're like, Jesus, power anytime soon? No, so they get a bit tetchy and have to think of something else to do. Okay, so then we pick it up in verse 15. What then are they going to do? In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. Don't 
Judas, different to the Judas we've listed already, the other Judas who betrayed Jesus, just in case you're trying to remember what happened to him. Luke helps us with some grisly details, okay, if you're into that sort of thing. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Nice. Uh, everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Acheldama, that is, field of blood. It's pretty dramatic stuff, okay? But I'm sure at this point they were asking, Peter, what are you on about? Why are you going on about Judas? We'd like to forget about him. Well, Peter does have a point, actually, that he gets to as we get to verse 20. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And this is exactly what they do. Verse 23. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. Not sure about you, but I find this one of the most bizarre passages in the Bible. And uh, I've got, here's a question for you over lunch today. And I, I'll give you full permission to ask this question. We can ask this in passages of the Bible. Was what they're doing here a complete waste of time? Okay, question. Talk about it. Elijah, I think, how could you even say that? Well, some of the Bible is prescriptive in its stories. Some is just descriptive. This is a story of what they did. Whether what they did had any use. I mean, we never hear from these two chaps. Well, possibly Barsabas again, but that's possibly a Matthias. Yeah, we just don't hear from them. Okay, and I, I think to give you a nudge of where I'm probably at with that is it's interesting that next week we'll see what happens when the Spirit arrives. And just so you know, when people say, oh, we want our church to be like the book of Acts, okay, which every church ever has said, okay, what they mean is Acts past chapter 2. Nobody has ever said, as far as I'm aware, we want our church to be like this. We'd love to have these meetings where we, we kind of shuffle the furniture around and make sure this person is in the right place. No, no one wants to be like that. It's important. Administration is important. But, you know, um, that's the thing. So just to just have a chat about that at lunch. Um, but I, I think I'd like to focus on something more specific in this passage, which I think is absolutely fascinating. We see in this passage uh, an idea of how the disciples saw themselves and the main role they saw that they had. Now Jesus had gone back to heaven. Okay, Think about it. If someone had gone up to Peter or James or Andrew or whoever while, they were, while Jesus was on earth and said, okay, just fill me in, your disciples, what do you do? Who are you? What's your raison d'etre in that regard? They go, really simple. See that guy there? Oh, he's off. We're following him. There's no metaphorical following here, although there is. They were literally following Jesus. They were going where he'd go. They were helping him on what he was doing. That's who they were. They were the followers of Jesus. Jesus goes to heaven. Who are you? What, what, what kind of brings, keeps this group together? What, what are you doing? Well, we see it in verse 22. This is why they want to get someone else to join up the gang. This explains their completionist tendencies to some regard. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. How did they see themselves? This group of people saw themselves primarily now as the guardians of one thing. The information about the resurrection of Jesus. Now, Obviously, the uh, 
criteria for their choice for a new number 12 is broader than this. It's someone who'd been with Jesus since the baptism by John. It's uh, uh, someone who'd seen his teachings and his acts of love and his miracles and all that stuff. But he does hone in on this one thing. It sees that their primary role is this one thing, a witness to this one thing, Jesus' resurrection. Actually, I think these guys knew something really important, a couple of things actually. If you're here today and you're thinking, well, Jesus' resurrection, okay, are you saying that that's a real thing? That's not kind of a spiritual up there reality. You're saying that actually really happened. Yes, you'll see that very clearly. That's the message of today's sermon, if you want a heads up on that one. And I wouldn't blame you at that point to think, really, seriously. Because bodily resurrection goes against most of what we know about reality and about what we know about human life, mortality, and all of those sort of things. It's, it's completely counter to how we've experienced the world and how we, we see the world. So it, it's not surprising people are skeptical about the resurrection. But these guys had seen a guy come back from the dead, and they wanted to make sure that there were at least 12 people around who could be there as the trusted guardians of that fact. They knew that Chinese whispers were set in, that some would get cynical and believe less than what happened. Some that would get a bit carried away and believe more than what happened. And they are making sure here that whoever they were, people who want to follow Jesus, they can go back to that group and say, we want to know what really happened. Did this happen? Not quite that. But did this happen? Oh yeah, definitely that happened. And that seems to be what's going on here. It's interesting. This is something that throughout Christian history, following from these guys, this has been understood by Christians. A guy called William Lane Craig, who's a famous Christian philosopher, was once asked, said, what would have to happen to stop you being a Christian? Can you think of anything that would happen to stop you being a Christian? And you might think that the right answer there would be, no, never, no, I would never stop following Jesus. No, he responded very quickly. He said, no, I know exactly what would happen. If they found the bones of Jesus, I would stop being a Christian. What did he mean? What he meant was, if Jesus didn't resurrect... This whole thing's a lie. And it all hangs on that one thing. Other things too, but on that one thing. You may not be that impressed by Christian philosophers, but the Apostle Paul says exactly the same in 1 Corinthians 15, 14. He says this, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Thanks for sticking that into the Bible, Paul. It's really good. You think, wow, that's thanks, and thanks, Johnny. Thank you. for the, What would stop you from believing in Jesus? With the resurrection being disproved, actually. And I say it might sound very negative, but actually flip it on its head for the moment. Because what that they're saying is that Christianity, unlike any other religious system, really, is based not upon ideas that are up here like kind of spiritual bubbles, but on a historical claim, a historical fact. Okay? And that's not just means it can be falsified. That means it can be verified as well. Last week, Jonathan... Uh, spoke about how at the heart of everything we're going to see in Acts, at the very beginning, is a conviction that these guys had. They believed something very strongly. They believed in someone very strongly, in Jesus. Okay, I'd like to kind of do a part B today. I want to hone in, as the disciples did here, as Paul did, as William Lane Craig does, to the one thing at the very root. What's the one thing that's at the, the foundation of this? And I want to zoom in on it, and I want to bolster your confidence in the resurrection of Jesus, okay? If you're a Christian here, I would like to do that. And I'm not just doing that so you can go away and say, ha-ha, I knew I was right. <laughs> well, that's nice as well. Um, I'd like to do it, uh, just like Jonathan said last week, because uh, from that foundation, as we read the book of Acts, 
we can then go on to do these things they did. As we go through this book, often the temptation will be to look at what's happening in Acts and say, yeah, but that's, they're the first disciples. Yeah, but they had this. Oh, yeah, but it's Peter. Come on, he was with Jesus. No, we come from the same starting place as these guys. The starting place must be, we are sure that this man rose from the dead. If we're there, all of this stuff's for us. The power that's going to come is for us. The adventures, the voice of God straight to us, the community's all there. But I want to rest us on the same foundation. If you're not a Christian, I'd like to challenge you with a perhaps surprising claim today. I'd like to argue that all of the amazing and I know apparently preposterous things that Christians believe and that you're going to be singing about or sitting watching others sing about in a few, few minutes uh, are actually not kind of crazy spiritual stuff that seems up there in the clouds but can be reasonably believed on the basis of a historical event that we have very good reason to believe. Facts like that there's a God who loves us, that there's a God who sent his son to earth, a God who calls us to repent of our sins, a God who offers us the chance to become part of his family, a God who, as we've just sung just now, for the vilest offender, the minute they believe, says, you're forgiven. You might think, oh, they're, they're religious beliefs. No, 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 reasonably we can hold them because they're based on the fact of the resurrection. And so that's the fact that, that's where I want to go uh, today. That is the plan as you speak. We'll see how closely I stick to that plan uh, as time goes on. Um, but let's, uh, basically, I'm going to be doing some history with us today, in a sense, which some of your hearts will drop at, I imagine, right at this, uh, this point. But um, I, just to give one more thing, I think, just to back this up and why this is so important, is to apply it to maybe some of us. I would imagine there'd be many of us today in different places, whether you're, whether you're a Christian or not, actually, who would have some questions and doubts about some things within the Christian faith. You know, what well, we, we don't shy away from those things. Obviously, we do. It'd be unhuman not to have doubts or questions, okay? And uh, you might have questions about all sorts of things about Jesus' teaching. You might be here today uh, wondering whether Jesus was right or wrong on uh, whether there's a God or not. So, you know, he was in the there is category. But you know what? You might be asking that question. You might be asking the question whether Jesus' teaching on sexual ethics is wise or foolish. It's a very live question. We should be asking questions like that in some ways in our culture today. You might be questioning whether Jesus' respect for the Old Testament was misplaced. Slightly more technical, but it's a good question. Or whether his trust in his disciples to faithfully compile the New Testament was naive. You know what, all these questions buzz around. You might have more questions of like, just thinking today, you know what, I've been doing this Christian thing for ages, but I can't get a handle on it. The doubts are flooding over. I don't know if I can keep going any longer. I'm not sure whether this Jesus' teachings was quite on. Well, you know what, today, if Jesus rose from the dead, surely we'll go with him on that stuff, won't we? Wouldn't we? I don't think that's an extreme claim. Because vindications for your teaching go, coming back from the dead by your own will, <laughs> that's reasonably good, okay, I'd say. And so that's what we're playing with today. And this, the stakes are particularly high, <laughs> I would say, in that regard. And then, now I'm keeping the stakes high because I know, like I said, history is not all our strong point. And I'm going to try to keep it zippy <laughs> as we go along with it. But those are what the stakes we're playing with. Now, we, I know that we can't be included in that group of the 12 witnesses to the resurrection. Okay, That's an exclusive group. We're not going to be there. And I, in a sense, people could ask, well, can you really ever know whether Jesus rose again from the dead? Okay. Now, in answer to that question, in a sense, I would say no, you can't know. 
in the sense that the disciples, these first disciples knew. Because there is nothing like, let's face it, it would be silly to say otherwise, um, first-hand uh, experience of something to, be, to give you knowledge, is there? I mean, when you see something, that's a different type of knowledge to someone telling you. So in that sense, we can never know. However, we can definitely know in the same sense as we'd use the word for knowing almost any other fact that we talk about, particularly in history. So we look at the historical evidence and then we look at what we know about history and we make reasonable judgments from these facts. That's how we know, for example, to use a topical example, how Julius, that Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon in 49 BC. Okay, so I'm going to see where that relates to. It's also how we know that King Henry VIII died on 28th of January 1547, apparently, according to Wikipedia. Uh, it's how we also know that Bobby Moore lifted the World Cup on 30th of July 1966. Do you, see, do you see what I mean? We can know that stuff. Everyone would say we know that. Why well, say we can know about the resurrection of Jesus in the same way? And I think the way we get to know those things is in the study of history, there are two ways we can get to events. One is eyewitness accounts. We can look at the eyewitness accounts of any event, whether they're kind of written or filmed or whatever they would be. But second, and I think we often don't reflect on this, we can also reflect on the visible effects of an event that we do get to see, even though we don't get to see the original event. Think of it like this. Let's imagine I'm standing above a po- by a pond, okay, and uh, I have a stone, and I drop the stone into the pond, okay, and you come around the corner half a second after I've dropped the stone. So you don't see a stone ever. At any point in this, there is no stone. However, even though you haven't seen me drop a stone in a pond, I would imagine that you could take a pretty good guess at what's just happened, even possibly the size of the stone, the force at which I dropped the stone, all of those things. How? How could you tell that? From the ripples that go out. You could see, oh, well, obviously this is what's happened. You didn't see the event, but you see how it affected other things. And when we examine the ripples of the resurrection, we see that those ripples are enormous. They're more like tidal waves in many ways, actually. And I'd say they lead us back very much to the very reasonable belief that this event, amazing as it may seem, actually happened. And I want to present you with four ripples today, and I want to do uh, ripples of the resurrection in, in that regard, and I want you to encourage you to do something that you may never have been heard to ask to do in church before. Yeah, I, I know that people don't like history, guys. I'm really trying to ramp this up. The stakes are high. Never been asked to do this in church before. But what, what I'm asking you to do, I would like you to adopt a cynical and skeptical stance to what I'm going to say, okay? <laughs> I'd like you to get your skeptic's hat and put it on your head right now. And I'm imagining the hat, you don't have to imagine it like this, as a pirate hat with skull and crossbones on. But however you want to see it, okay, skeptical hats on. And I want you to ask her every question, could there be any other explanation of this ripple other than the bodily resurrection of Jesus? Okay? <laughs> it's okay. And is all right. Am I, am I drifting to heresy? This is a skeptical hat. Actually, don't listen to Andy. I'm, I've got the stage, so it's all right. He's, uh, he's crying in the corner. What have we done? Anyway, <laughs> if by the end you cannot think of any alternative that stands up to scrutiny, whoever you are today, whether you've been to church a million times, whether you don't, you're hostile to religion, whether you're a member of another faith, whether you're somewhere in the middle, I'd say you have no option but to believe in Christianity. That'd be where, where I'd stand on those sort of things, okay? So high stakes, four ripples, Ready for action? That was a question. Yeah! yeah. Rah! Freedom. Anyway, ripple number one. <laughs> the ripple number one, we're going to start nearest to us and move closest to these guys. 2017 AD, Christianity Today. 
Today, it is estimated there are over 2 billion people who would call themselves Christians in the world. It's about a third of the world's population who I guess definition of that would be they build their lives upon the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth in some way or another. Okay? Uh, our secular society would claim that religious faith is dwindling and is on its way out. This is in complete contrast to the fact across the world, if you take a global perspective, where religious faith is growing and Christianity is at the forefront of that growth. Okay, So not only are there more Christians alive today in the world than there ever have been before, but the percentage of the world who are Christians is higher today than it ever has been before. To say that again, because that's really important. Not only is there more Christians alive today than ever before, but the percentage of the world who are Christians is higher than it ever has been before. And even for those who aren't Christians, uh, in most of the world, every day, Every time they check their clocks and look at the dates, they feel that ripple happening because Jesus literally reset the clocks. I don't think we think about that enough. That is absolutely remarkable. 2,000 years later, Christianity has taken over the world and its momentum is increasing, not dwindling. Such a colossal movement demands a colossal uh, explanation and I'd argue the bodily resurrection of that movement's founder would certainly fit the bill. It would be the kind of thing we'd be looking for to explain such a phenomenon. And just to be clear, I can in my mind's eye see those pirates' hats being put on right now, okay? Um, On the basis of that alone, you couldn't get to the resurrection. If that was all we had, you know what, there are other alternative explanations. There have been other movements in history, religious and otherwise, that have grown quickly uh, and spread fast. Okay, that's, that's the fact. But it is worth considering that Christianity is the one that has sustained its growth for the longest over the widest geographical area. But on its own, that's not compelling evidence for someone coming back from the dead. I understand that. But it doesn't need to be because it is only ripple number one. So let us go back 1,700 years to 350 AD for ripple number two. Okay? Ripple number two, the conversion of the Roman Empire, 350 AD. In 315 AD, Emperor Constantine, the Emperor of Rome, converted to Christianity. 65 years later, his successor Theodosius switched the official religion of the Roman Empire from paganism over to Christianity. Okay? Uh, some of you may have studied this, you might know about this, it might be the first time you've ever heard of it. Colossal impact on the whole world, this event. And many have asked, why on earth did this happen? Why did they choose to change things around? Well, Rodney Stark, who's a respected secular sociologist, he was not a Christian when he started writing his academic work on the, the growth of the early church, just so you know, he was at the end, which is probably telling. Okay, Rodney Stark uh, estimates that there were between 5 and 7.5 million Christians in the Roman Empire by 300 AD. Okay, in some places, that's almost half of the population in some places in the Roman Empire. So I've put forward that Christianity being around today is a, a bit of a lucky thing because constantly just picked a religion and it was this backwater-like kind of little myth, small communities just about surviving. Then constantly says, I'm a Christian, and then suddenly, boom, with the state of Rome on their side, Christianity machine motored on. That's just simply not what happened. All Constantine and Theodosius were doing was responding to the takeover that had already happened that unlike any other similar takeover in history, had no uh, resort to arms in it and no political power at all. Okay? From that time, from 300, yes, 
unfortunately, the history of Christianity is littered with uh, merging with state and re- church that can be unhelpful, and also some resort sometimes to arms. That, that has been in Christianity's history. It wasn't there at all, not one instance of it in any way before 350 AD. They kind of took Jesus' turn the other cheek stuff quite seriously in those days. Okay. That's amazing. <laughs> Again, I just want you to think about that. That's incredible. How could such a takeover have happened? It seems almost miraculous when you look at how those things happen in history that such a thing could occur. And therefore, by the law of cause and effect, it would suggest that a miraculous cause certainly isn't out of the question. But we don't need to stop there. That's just ripple number two. Let us move back. 300 years to 64 AD for ripple number three. Ripple number three is an immense multitude of Christians in Rome, 64 AD. Now, just, you know, to bring this dry and dusty history, I'm at once going to make it more personal and even more dusty for you in a moment, okay, if that's possible. Okay, I have a personal connection to this one. As an 18-year-old, I translated the ancient source on which this piece of evidence is based. Yes, for my sins, I took Latin A-level, okay? Now, let's just do a test here. This is a test of culture for our sites, and I won't tell you how South did on this. Who has ever studied Latin? Can you put your hand up? Any point in your education? Okay, good. Anyone took it? Keep your hand up if you took it at GCSE level. A-level? Curses. Okay, I am weird and a freak. I realize that. And it's being proved at every site. I've still got the North, though. Those have got to be classical scholars, surely. Anyway, I took Latin for an A level, and part of the curriculum in those days was this guy called Tacitus. Okay? Tacitus, um, as you'll see in a minute, is not a fan of Christianity. He was not writing in a religious text. He was an ancient historian. And from Tacitus, we would get a very large proportion of our knowledge about the ancient Roman Empire, okay, particularly in the early centuries AD. And uh, as I, I remember being in class, I remember going through it and suddenly reading this, what? It's talking about Jesus. This isn't in the Bible, this is history. I remember going through and translating the piece and it's going to come up on the screen just behind us. Actually, you can read it while I'm, I'm talking. I will refer to it. And from this passage in Tacitus' Annals, just to be clear, Tacitus is a respected historian. People respect this guy on everyth- pretty much everything he says, not flawless, that's not how history works, but he's respected. Okay, so this passage is in that context. Yeah? Uh, we learn two things, amazing things from this passage of Tacitus uh, that you can skirt through and you'll see them. There's other things here as well. But you learn this. First of all, Jesus of Nazareth was really crucified. It's not a religious fact, it's a fact. Okay? Under Pontius Pilate, in the reign of Emperor Tiberius, just as the Bible says. Now, From other historical records, we would know what crucifixion was like and how it worked. Okay, I'm not going to go into the gory details for you too much. All I need to say is this. Crucifixion was what the Roman Empire did when they wanted to stop things like Christianity from happening. It's exactly what it was. So this is many accounts of this in the ancient world. There'd be someone who'd rise up and they'd make a name for themselves. And people would be interested and they'd gather a little gang around them. They'd start kind of moving on. Gang grows, causing a bit more trouble. And Rome's watchful eye. They look over, yeah, we'll let them be, let them be, let them be. Nah, gone too far. Let's do it. And this is what they did. They would crucify the main guy, okay, which would involve them being uh, beaten, tortured, stripped naked, and hung, bleeding uh, to death in the middle of the city publicly. Okay? In ancient records, there are many uh, records of uh, messiahs who were followed before they got crucified. There are no records of any messiahs who were followed after they got crucified. Oh, sorry. There's one record of a Messiah who was followed after he got crucified. 
You don't tend to follow someone who you've seen crushed by the political system very publicly in front of you. That's what history testifies. But that's not what happened to Jesus. Jesus, that is what happened to Jesus on the cross. But then Tacitus tells us what happened next. And it's incredible. In the context of that, it's amazing. Because the second thing we see from this is the Christian church grew incredibly quickly. Not only did the crucifixion of its founder not stop Jesus' movement, but his movement's growth accelerated in a way unparalleled in the history of movements. We know this because, as Tacitus writes here, 64 AD, Great Fire of Rome. Nero, who probably started the Great Fire of Rome, according to Tacitus, needs someone to blame. Who does he pick? He picks the Christians. And you may well know the stories of what happened to them. Set on fire in parks, set bed to the lions, all of that sort of stuff is around this time. And there are other occasions where that kind of persecution broke out. But look at this statement he makes here. How many Christians were, were crucified? Why do we still have records of these things happen? It's because... An immense multitude, he says, of Christians were caught. Now just consider that for a second, would you? This is 30 years after Jesus' crucifixion, 1,500 miles away, an immense multitude of Christians are caught and put on trial. Doesn't my boggle slightly at that point and say, well, what about the ones that didn't get caught? That's another number. And what about the people in between those 1,500 miles in all the other places around the place? That's incredible. Whether you call yourself a Christian or not, even with your sceptical hat on, well, particularly actually in this occasion, I would like to ask you to try to think imaginatively for a moment about what possibly could have caused something like that to happen. If we don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, we have got to explain what else could have, firstly, spawned the fastest growing movement in the history of movements, and secondly, done it from the least promises of start, promising start ever. The movement's founder, publicly crushed, naked and bleeding, and dying in front of one of the major cities in the ancient world, Jerusalem. But actually, we're still not done. Let's go to our final ripple. Our fourth ripple is a letter written nine years earlier, 55 AD, from a Jewish convert to a fledgling Christian community in a gr- the Greek city of Corinth. Okay, the fourth ripple is, uh, ripple is the reported sightings of the risen Jesus. And it's found in the Bible, actually, in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 8. This is what Paul writes. He says this. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, as Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of whom are still living, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. I wouldn't blame some of us, particularly if you took my pirate hat advice seriously, to at this point groan slightly and say, ah, there was a big build-up, you were doing all right, and then finally you resort to the Bible. You can't prove the Bible with the Bible. That's not how it works. This is a religious text, okay? We believe this, but this isn't the realm up here. This isn't the realm down here of facts and science and history. But it's got to be said, this passage would be precious to many of us as as Christians who would believe a number of things about the Bible. But even if you don't even like the Bible or have no strong feelings either way about the Bible, there are loads of facts you have to wrestle with about that text up there. Here are the things that everyone agrees about that text, whether they're Christian, not Christian, other religion, agnostic, but people who have done work on this and are scholars. Okay, Everyone agrees that the writer of this passage was Paul. 
I've not read any academics at all or scholars who've questioned that. There are some books in the New Testament, some academics have said, well, it says it's Paul, is it really Paul? 1 Corinthians isn't one of them. If, if Paul existed, and I've never met anybody who doubted Paul of Tarsus existed, he wrote this letter, okay? Also, uh, almost all of these scholars, again, not just Christians, but academics of all sorts, would date this letter as 55 AD, okay? And what basically then we've got here is a historical artifact of somebody saying this. They're saying, Jesus rose again from the dead. Happened about, what, 20 years ago? If you don't believe me, don't blame me if you're not believing me. It's kind of a big claim. This is what you need to do. Go to Jerusalem and ask some people, because everyone knows it happened. 500 people even saw him after it happened. Go and find out for yourself. This is a challenge to anybody, and this is in the public domain. Okay? 20 years after the, the resurrection, the crucifixion. Now, if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, just to be very clear, we wouldn't be celebrating this passage. We would be cursing, gnashing our teeth at this passage because this passage would have been the end of Christianity. It would have been gone. We wouldn't be Christians because if this Jesus didn't rise from the dead, as we looked in the annals of history, we'd see lots of other letters. Letters from people who said, Hello, Tony. I read this letter from Paul. You know what? Took him seriously. Went to Jerusalem. Jesus, no one had heard of him. And as regards a crucifixion, well, the whole thing's a total, total made-up story. Paul, don't know what he's on about. Don't know if they're all cockneys in those days, but anyway, okay. <laughs> you, you, you get the idea. As we look back in history, what do we see? We don't see one. There's not one record of anything like that in history. No one went back and said, no, no, Jesus, sorry, none of that stuff. Remember I mentioned at the start, Uh, William Lane Craig's comment about how we could disprove Christianity. How? Finding the bones of Jesus. Actually, actually, in reality, that's kind of hypothetically true. But even if they did find a tomb with Jesus written on and some bones in it, there'd be lots of discussions you could have. You could say, well, Jesus, popular name, all of that sort of thing. So for us, it's going to be hard, even whatever, whatever comes up. But the same was not true for anyone who read this letter in the mid to late 50s. They could very easily have gone to Jerusalem, not very far, and they could have looked and even poked bones. They were there. Again, you might think, well, grave robbing's a little bit harsh. Why would you go to that length? Well, I tell you what, the authorities would have had absolutely no problem at all to show off the bones to Jesus if they had them, because they were the ones who had most to lose by the resurrection rumours. Again, what do we have? We don't have any record of an investigation like that. We don't have one official document refuting these very public, very disruptive claims with any evidence at all. And we have not one report of an exhumation or a hunt for Jesus' tomb. I just want to ask you, just being quite frank with you, what possible alternative explanation could there be except that, unprecedented as it is, Jesus actually rose from the dead? Guys, we don't base our faith here on some loose kind of ideas that are really helpful for us and make our lives a bit more happy and, and you know, what might make make us nicer people. We rest our faith on on something solid, something concrete. If you have found this dry this morning, oh, I want you to take this away from this morning. Guys, we have a conviction that is based on something solid that almost, well, I'd go as far as saying that no other religious system in the world has. What do you do on those days when you think, you know what, I just can't see God at the moment. I just can't hear him. I don't, have no idea. I cannot understand how that happened. Have I been barking up the wrong tree? Have I given all this for nothing? You know what, whether you'd admit it or not, I know that everyone has those days. I have those days reasonably regularly. 
What do you do on those days? Does your faith depend on your mood? Does it depend on the circumstances that happen around you and to you? Now, the first disciples were very clear. They wanted to appoint a 12th member, <laughs> rightly or wrongly, to have a gang that meant that when followers of Jesus had those days, they could go to them and say, tell us again. What was it like? How many angels were there? What happened? How did that happen? Peter chirps and says, it was like this. And then one of the others goes, no, no, it's like this. And they came away saying, you know what? It's crazy. I know it sounds crazy. He really did rise. And we can do the same today. As we look at the book of Acts, we see a church that transformed the world. Church was started by a group of people with unshakable conviction. They trusted in Jesus of Nazareth. But more specifically, their faith can be traced back to one key event in his life, his resurrection. Now that 12 was a pretty exclusive group, but on the strength of their witness, even us 2,000 years later, we can have a similarly unshakable conviction in this reality. As Paul puts it, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. Now that's not just a fact that we believe or not believe. We'll see next week how that's a, that, that's a spiritual reality that we can experience through the power of the Holy Spirit. But it does all start with the simple question, do you believe it? Do you believe it? If you're not a Christian, if this is even partially persuasive to you, I'd encourage you to check out this Jesus further. And in fact, I'd go a bit further. I'd encourage you to follow him with your whole life. I don't think I'm being extreme in that claim. If he rose again from the dead, surely we can trust him in the other stuff. If you are a Christian, I want to leave you now with two things. I want to leave you with confidence, but it's not just a, yes, good, Jesus rose from the dead. I also want to leave you with celebration. You're about to worship the risen Jesus. We're singing some songs for a while. This isn't just confidence, this is celebration. This is pure joy. Because when we look at the world around us and we use the disciplines that clever people using their brains that God has given them have given to us things like the arts and the sciences and history and sociology and psychology things we shouldn't shy away from we should use them to look at God's world use them carefully at times but we we those things are good they're gifts to us when we look at those things what do we see well we don't see a cold hard reality that is hostile or even different to us indifferent to us sorry Now, our lives can be built on the historically verifiable fact of a God who is deeply concerned with each of us, who wants to bring us into his family as his very children. A God that is not a distant reality or an unapproachable concept, but who came down to earth as a human and he's still alive today. This is the beauty of the resurrection. He's not, we don't remember something this morning. He's here with us now. Jesus is here with us now. He rose again, went to heaven. So we'll find out where he sent us his spirit, but Jesus sees us now. He comes alongside us now. He's inside us through his spirit now. His power is available to us now. His love is poured out to us now. I can't think of a better way to end than how Paul sums all this stuff up. What then should we say in response to all this? God is for us. Who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those who God has chosen? It's Christ Jesus who justifies. Who is he that condemns? 
Christ Jesus who died, listen, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. What does that mean? It means he's acting as our advocate. It means he's pleading our case. It means he's calling eternally in the throne room of heaven that the favor of God would always land on our heads. And we can be sure of that fact.